Hey, welcome back to the Staff Meeting Devo portion of our podcast. Today, Pastor Tom shares the word with us during our staff meeting. We hope that you enjoy it. Check it out. Well, I'm glad that we're able to gather together. And also, I just want to make sure everyone hears that Luke's message last week, if you were part of staff meeting, or for those of you on the podcast, if you were able to listen uh, last week, um, Luke gave a wonderful talk. Really appreciated it. Um, especially the thing that has stuck with me and reverberated with me this week is if, um, if it's not worshipful in the process, why do we expect the result to be spirit-filled, worshipful, and significant and meaningful. I thought that was such a great idea is that if we're not worshiping in the process, in the, the activity of you know, doing ministry and fulfilling responsibilities, if that is not worshipful, why would we ever expect that the outcome is going to be you know, this wonderful, glorious display of God's goodness if in the process it's just mundane, it's just going through these chicken off. So I really was blessed by that. So thanks so much, Luke. I appreciate it a ton. Um, I'm going to continue. This is now the third installment of um, the Builders mini-series that I put together. Uh, And today we're going to look at Solomon. And this whole idea about Builders, it started really when um, we came, you know, we reopened after shutdown. So this is going back about 18 months or so now. But, you know, when we reopened, there was a number of new positions that needed to happen. There was a number of departments and ministries that weren't operational at that time. And so there was a whole bunch of change, a whole bunch of reshuffling, and the whole thing has been, you know, a lot of things have been turned up on their head. And it was wonderful to see so many members of the church just doing whatever, like whatever it is. Like, okay, we're doing this thing. We're doing like a Chick-fil-A outreach. I'm there. We're doing a coffee thing. I'm there. We've got registrations that need to happen. Let's go. Kids ministry classrooms need to open in a way unlike ever before. Kids team, let's go. The school, like everything was completely thrown up in the air. Let's go. Teachers got on it. Mrs. Durst made sure. Let's go. And it was so great to see so many people just step up. And I I started referring to people that kind of carried that attitude, that had that spirit about them as builders. Like these are the people that are building the church. Like that that disposition of, you know what? Let's go. What matters here is the mission. We are going to put our hand to the plow. And it was this idea of, you know, as we're building. And then every once in a while, you just kind of look up and you kind of see your co-labor the people that are building alongside you, those are the builders. And we are a church that has a number of people that I would say are true builders. There's two pieces of good news with this. We have a bunch of builders in the church that are builders. And the second piece of good news is if we have people in the church that are not builders, they can become builders. This is good news. Our job as staff and as leaders is to give the builders everything they need to do a good job building and to help people who aren't builders to become the most passionate builders imaginable. So we've already looked at Noah, we looked at Moses, now it's time to look at Solomon. Solomon, of course, he was responsible for overseeing the building of the temple. And we know that Solomon's temple was magnificent and a true spectacle, but the focus today is actually going to be from the negatives from that period of time. Solomon um, is the definition of starting off strong and then having some wonky seasons after that, should we say. So I'm going to read from uh, 1 Kings. This is a decent chunk of scripture we're going to go through today. So starting 1 Kings... Chapter 6, starting verse 2. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So it took seven years to build the temple. Now going down to chapter 7. One of Solomon's buildings was called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took 13 years to complete the construction. Now, let me back up a second. Temple, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high, took seven years to build. Solomon's palace, 150 feet long, 
75 feet wide, 45 feet high, and took 13 years to build. Now, I'm a nerd, and I'm okay with it. I've grown to be okay with it. Looking at the uh, cubic feet of the two structures, the temple is 121,500 square feet. There is not going to be a quiz on this. There is 121,500 square feet that made up the temple. The palace that Solomon built was 506,250 square feet. Significantly bigger. Significantly larger. We read that it took the temple seven years to be built. The palace took 13. Significantly longer to be built. Now, this is not a question of square footage or even cubic footage, but rather it's a question of passion and commitment. The amount of resource that it took to build the palace versus the temple significantly higher. The commitment, the passion, the time, the effort, the energy, so much more would have gone into making Solomon's personal palace than making the temple. And it's a horrible indication of where Solomon's heart was as he spent far much more time, far much more resources, far much more effort building his own palace than building the temple. It's a horrible indication of where Solomon's heart was. And there's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it, but you can tell someone's priorities based on where their calendar and their wallets are. And here we see Solomon taking extremely more amount of time to build his own palace and spend wildly more resources to get his own palace built. Now, I want to read another passage about Solomon that kind of digs a bit deeper into the mess that was going on in his heart right now. So this is 1 Kings. This time we're jumping down to chapter 10, starting verse 26. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and the Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and some from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning insects and sacrifice their gods. So there's a bunch of stuff in there. I know it's a long chunk of scripture, but there's a number of things that we read about that point to faults that Solomon had and weaknesses that he had, mistakes that he made, and detestable things. It's kind of the language that we just read that he used as he was leading as king. First thing is we see that Solomon amassed a bunch of horses. Now, that may be something that's easy to gloss over. You know, a guy has 12,000 horses. You know, what's the big deal there? Horses represent power. 
It represents military might. If you've got a bunch of horses and a bunch of chariots, that speaks to the, the strength of your army. Solomon acquired power. There's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. It says, nearly all people can stand adversity, but if you want to test someone's character, give them power. A little power can go to our heads. It is devastating. And what we're really feeding is the joy of controlling people. Megan and I, it was uh, probably about a year or so ago, we were reading a book um, about spiritual abuse and the ways that this can show itself in churches and unhealthy and toxic behavior that can come from uh, pastors. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea of this need for control. And, you know, this is talking specifically in a church environment with pastors that are kind of abusing that position. And this idea of that they need to control things. And physical abuse, we typically associate with things like, you know, hitting somebody and things like that. But this sort of goes a step further and sort of says physical abuse can also be considered controlling where people go, what they do. Their physical actions can also be considered and is uh, sort of grouped together with physical abuse. This idea about um, what they do, where they're allowed to go, the kind of, you know, what are they eating in their spare time? Are they doing what they need to do? Are they, um, are they spending their spare time working on church things when they should be relaxing? It's outside of the reasonable boundaries of ministry. Making demands on what people wear, um, you know, beyond a reasonable dress code. You know, what kind of car they drive. All these kinds of things are traits that you see in unhealthy leaders, all in an attempt to control. It's that need and that hunger for power. And we kind of see a hint of that from Solomon. You know, I mean, he's amassed a bunch of horses, but we can see it at a local level as we think about ourselves, think about our ministries, think about our teams. This idea of like, hey, can you go do that? And then they go do that. That can become enticing. That can feed something really unhealthy within us. This idea of like, hey, can we get there at 7 a.m.? And you know that somebody is setting an alarm, getting up earlier than they want to, to meet you at the time you set. That kind of power over people can start to take a very, very unhealthy spot in our lives. For Solomon, it resulted in him just getting all the military power that he could. But I want us to be aware that this can happen in our lives as we're leaders, as we're serving our teams, as we're trying to build healthy teams, that we don't want to be addicted to that element of control over people. We are called to serve people. We are not called to control or lord it over people. Next thing. There's in there, there's a couple of things woven about Egypt. Solomon was trading with Egypt. He married the Pharaoh's daughter. It's kind of woven into the text. Egypt will always, in the Old Testament, represent the slavery of the Israelites before they were freed under the leadership of Moses. Have you ever um, watched a movie or a TV show and someone is doing something stupid and you find yourself screaming at the TV? It, it does happen from time to time. There was one particular documentary on Netflix that Megan and I watched about how parents acted when their daughter got kidnapped. And it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you... Anyway, it was a thing. But reading the Old Testament can be like that. You can get this as you read the Old Testament. You'll see that God rescues us from death and from bondage, and yet we're tempted to go back. The obvious example is the Israelites. They just got freed after the Red Sea, the centerpiece moment of the Old Testament. An ocean parts in two, and a whole nation of people walks through on dry ground. And within a month, they're asking to go back. Unbelievable. That's the obvious example, but it happens over and over again, this pull to go back to the past. It's the same thing as a fish... So you drop a line, you got bait on the end, the fish takes the bait, 
more and more fishermen that I speak to, they don't take the fish home anymore. They, you know, throw the fish back. They release the fish back. To, and still, that fish will come back again for the bait. We can find ourselves doing it. We can reminisce about the past. We can daydream about the past. We can forget the pain, the misery, the bondage, the headaches, the trouble that came with it. We need to remind ourselves that the past is what God took us from for our own good. It is not something to entice us back into. Now, addiction is an awful thing. I'm sure everyone here, we have a friend, family member. Um, we may even have our own story of addiction. It is a terrible thing. It does devastating things to families. That's not necessarily what I'm hitting on today. Oftentimes, what's you know, just as severe as a true addiction is just walking back into what's comfortable, picking up an old habit, not letting go of destructive mindsets, of going back to what's familiar. That can be devastating to us. And I see this from Solomon as he's sort of having these interactions with Egypt. He's having an interactions with the terrible past of the Israelites. Third thing that we see, Solomon had a lot of wives, a lot of wives. And it's amazing that this will continue to devastate people. This idea, you know, the, the pull that lust has and sexual temptation has, it continues to pull people away from God. And I wonder how many new believers read the Bible and the numerous times where it says, run from sexual immorality, abstain from sexual immorality, be done with this. I wonder how abrasive that is to people. I wonder how startling that is for new believers who perhaps don't have any Christian context at all are reading this and they're realizing just how contrary kingdom living is to what the world would describe as normal. What America says is normal, regular, and expected today in 21st century United States is contrary to what we see in the scriptures as well. God would say, this is the kind of life that you should be living. Now, it's always uncomfortable, of course, to talk about this, but I did feel it was worth just looking at two things. The first thing is that the problem of sin is always self-evident. Now, I'm convinced that God saying, don't do X, Y, Z, should be enough for us not to do X, Y, Z. But in his goodness and his love, it is self-evident why we should not do these things. And I think we get that with stealing. I think we can all see with common sense, if we steal, there are negative consequences with this. If we're lying, we can easily see. If people are lying, it leads to things that are, you know, are terrible outcomes, murder, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want us to lose sight of, and when I say us, I mean the church in the 21st century. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the problems with sexual sin are self-evident. I mean, honestly, take a moment and just imagine if the only sexual expression humanity had was between a husband and a wife, and it was completely monogamous, and there was complete abstinence until the point of marriage. That is the severe Christian attitude towards these things. Traditionally, and what I would uphold as an individual, and I believe we uphold as a church. If that was the only sexual expression humanity had, think for a moment of the problems that would just disappear. Broken marriages, abuse, date rapes, gone, just gone. And people tell me I'm crazy for having this stance. The devastation that is self-evident from sexual immorality is plain as day. I don't need to make this case. I just need to invite people, look at the world around you. With teenagers, this is unbelievably frustrating and deeply upsetting because all these kids have to do is look at the mess of the people around them and they can see plain as day that this is not just about being some strict, upbrought, you know, Bible-bashing nutter. This is about saving your life. This is about God protecting us. And having that deep conviction is something that I believe is essential for us as a church. We see this in the life of Solomon. The, the lust that he had, the fact that he wanted to have 700 wives and there wasn't quite good enough, so we needed 300 concubines to go with that 
And all of it led him on a path that led to absolute devastation. Second thought, Paul says multiple times to run from sexual sin. Not to see how close we can get, but to run. And in Colossians, he goes a step further and says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul is not playing around. Put it to death. Be done. It is awful to watch the, the absolute devastation that this happens, the sexual immorality has in the lives of people. This is not about getting on a soapbox and beating people up. This is about rescuing people's lives. This is about helping people. We're not mad about sin because we're all angry people. We're mad about sin because it ruins people's lives, and we love people. It, uh, we love people. I'm going to move on. Fourth thing, wealth, otherwise known as greed, the need for more. It is never enough. It is never enough. As long as our value is connected to our net worth, we'll struggle because it is never enough. I think this speaks to the last of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Do not be jealous. Do not want what you have no right to want. What is not yours, do not want that, is that constant, unsatiable desire to just want more and more and more and more. Now, fortunately, those four things, they've been stumbling blocks for people for all time. You see this all throughout the scripture, you see it all throughout human history, we've seen it in our own lives. The absolute drive to have power, to be drawn back to the past, to be driven by lust, and to have absolute greed, those things have been evident in human history since all time. It's always been present. Consider the people that you know who are struggling with their faith. Think about your own struggles. These four things are likely what's tripping people up. In my experience, those four things, power, the past, lust, and greed, have caused more problems in the lives of believers than wrestling with doubt and even personal tragedy. Those four things have caused more problems in the lives of believers than I would say anything else that you or I could point to. Now, wouldn't it be great if the Lord pointed to some of these things to give us a warning? Well, he's awesome, so he did. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 17. You are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king uh, as king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. Huh. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. Huh. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Huh. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Come on, Solomon, it's right there, man. Power, wealth, lust, the past. God warned the Israelites, this is going to be what will rob you of blessing, life, joy, peace, and freedom. It is a devastating shame that Solomon did not heed these warnings. The king should have known the scriptures. Devastating shame that he didn't pay any attention to this. But in a moment of honesty, you and I are tripping over the same stuff. The people we love, the people we care about, the people on our teams, the people in our family, the people we care about, the people we're praying for, the people we work with, they are all tripping over these same things. Power, the past, lust, and greed. 
This verse from Ecclesiastes says, uh, Ecclesiastes 3.1, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to tear down and a time to build up. And we've been talking about Solomon being a builder, but I think it's also worth noting that Ecclesiastes, which is traditionally attributed to Solomon writing this in his own age, perhaps with a little retrospective, there's also a time to tear down. Time to tear down and a time to build up. Time to tear down those things in our lives that are causing us to crave and hunger and want power, to be pulled back into the past, to be driven and motivated by lust, to be giving in to greed and the need for more and more. The remedy is to tear it down, to prioritize God's kingdom, let that be reflected in our lives, to let it be observable to people. Now, the opposite of those four things is to serve all instead of power. Instead of being drawn in by the past, is to have hope for the future. Instead of being driven by lust, is to be faithful in our marriages and purity. Instead of being driven by greed, instead of be a generous people. Serve all, hope for the future, faithful in our marriages and purity, and to be generous. Lord, pray we learn a lesson from Solomon. Pray we look at his example. And Lord, that we do take that warning seriously that we're not motivated by the need to have power and control over people. The Lord, that we're not driven by greed or by lust. Lord, that we instead, that we do, we have a hope for the future. Instead of being dragged back into the past, we have a true hope for the future in you. We have a desire and a love for serving people. Lord, that we're a generous people. Lord, that we're going to be faithful in our relationships, in our marriages, and our purity. Lord, that we're going to just completely sidestep all the devastation the world has by resisting temptation and by having our eyes fixed on you. Pray a blessing on today. Pray a blessing on our different teams and ministry areas. Lord, we believe good things are coming. In Jesus' name, amen.